posture of complaint against God and Moses. They remember their previous situation in Egypt as better than it was. They do not see the benefits they are receiving in the midst of a difficult situation. But even more problematic, their murmuring reflects a breaking of covenantal bond with their God, who has rescued them and provided for them. Grumbling is highly contagious within communities, and occasional complaining and dissatisfaction can become a way of life. Complaint is often overgeneralized, and soon everything seems unsatisfactory. While gratitude makes us more sensitive to the gifts that other people bring into our lives, discontent blinds us to what we've been given. And here we are again. God delivered them, pulled them out of exile, puts them back in the promised land, establishes, reestablishes them. They remember, they misremember, they remember inaccurately what life used to be. And here they are murmuring and complaining towards God and each other. And it's something that just kind of infects the community. They complain. The second thing this group of people do is that they're self-centered and entitled. And as I was kind of reading like through this passage, this line just kept jumping out at me. Um, and it's in verse 14. It says, you have asked, uh, it is futile, futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? What do we gain? You ever asked that question? What's in it for me? What do I gain from this? I think the problem is we, we, approach, we, we approach everything with this question, our relationships, our experiences, whether or not I want to go to a certain thing. What's in it for me? I was grumbling and murmuring yesterday because I ran a half marathon, uh, which I was so happy to do. <laughs> uh, but it was hard. It was really hard. And I was really sore. And I was exhausted. And just the way timing goes with schedules. Last night, my daughter Sophia had a father-daughter dance at her school. Guess who didn't want to go at all? And I was in one of those situations where, like, this is a big deal for her. And I am absolutely exhausted. And my legs hurt. And I'm disappointed because I didn't get the time that I wanted. I'm just grumpy. There's nothing in this for me. And finally, like, Marcy got a hold of me and was like, this is, this is for Sophia. It's not for you. So I went. And I'm miserable. <laughs> but it was this, this is experience for us, uh, father-daughter dance, not easy to do. And it was a lovely time. It was a, it was a blast. I wasn't able to dance, but they did the hand jive, so I did that a little bit, you know. <laughs> and it, it was just so much fun. I didn't want to do it. It was hard. I was grumpy. I was sore. What's in it for me? When, our, when we approach our relationships, our family, our friends and community, our church, when we approach God with this question, what's in it for me, it becomes a dangerous thing. Selfish, entitled, self-centered. And that's not to say we don't have boundaries. That's not to say, like, I had a right to be, you know, kind of grumpy because of what, you know, how I was feeling. Like, that's all fine. But when this becomes, like, the defining question, so much that God puts it in the scripture, you keep asking, what's in it for me? We should be aware that there's something very selfish within our own lives that's guiding our decision making. What's in it for me? And entitled. One of the 
ways I know I'm entitled is because of how I drive. And Marcy reminds me of this all the time when I'm driving. Like, I just assume everyone can anticipate what I'm thinking when I'm on the road. And I forget that, like, I'm not the only person on the road driving somewhere with an agenda. Like, everyone else, ha they're driving somewhere with an agenda, too. But, boy, are there a lot of just dumb drivers out there, right? Like, <laughs> I, I can't remember who said it, but there's that quote, like, when you're driving, you ever notice that anyone going slower than you is an idiot, and everyone going faster than you is a maniac, right? Because <laughs> they're not going at your pace. Entitled, self-centered, I approach these every situation with this, what's in it for me? What do I profit from it? And will I still participate if I'm not gaining something? This group of people that God says, you have spoke arrogantly against me. I mean, what's in it for you? Like, what have I done? For, I, I've pulled you out of Babylonian captivity. I've placed you back in this land. I've reestablished your walls. I've rebuilt your temple. And here you are saying, what have you done for me lately? How easy it is to just slip into that kind of thinking. The third thing is, th is this, that they compare themselves to the prosperity of the wicked. They compare their lives to the prosperity of the wicked, and they're saying things like, it doesn't matter, it's futile to serve God. That doesn't, I mean, look at these people over here, they're total pagans, and they're rich. They're, they're getting all sorts of great things that happen to them. What's going on there? And they start comparing their lives now, I don't know exactly what is going on there or why that's allowed to happen, but what I do know is that their focus is now not on their own situation and what God's doing to bless them. It's all about, look at what everyone else has. This comparison trap takes over. It's just, it, it's, they're focused on what everyone else has and what they don't have instead of, instead of focusing on the blessings that they have. Their eyes are on everyone else, and they're comparing their lives. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt that said, comparison is the thief of joy. God looks and says, who cares what everyone else is getting? What I've done for you, all you can focus on is what other people get. It's so hard to do this in our relationships that we just constantly compare our lives to what other people have. We see what others have, and we say, I, I wish I had that. When we do that, we forget about the good things that we do have in our life. And then the fourth thing is this group of people, this group of people that are the arrogant, they have no eternal perspective. It's all kind of short-term thinking. What, what has God done for me and how does that help my life right now? We forget that there's this bigger plan, this bigger picture that God is up to something in this world. There's no eternal perspective. And what does God say about this, the self-centeredness, the, the complaining, the entitlement, the comparing? He says, this is an arrogance. This is, there's something prideful here in your lives as you act this way. There's arrogance towards me. This is how you've spoken arrogantly against me. Second group starts in verse 16. If you have a Bible, NIV has this subtitle, The Faithful Remnant, says this, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened. This other group, the first group was called the arrogant. I would call maybe this group the humble the humble. One of their defining 
characteristics is there's a sense of humility with them in their relationship with God and each other. A sense of humility. Now, humility, not like they've been humiliated. That's not what we're talking about here. Humility is this this, uh, posture towards God where there's this humbleness of heart towards him. My community group's going through Mere Christianity uh, with C.S. Lewis, and there's a whole chapter in there on pride. I feel like I quote it like every month or so, so I decided not to today. But one of the things that he says about humility, and I don't know if he said it, it's usually attributed to him, but humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. This idea that you're not self-centered, you're not entitled, you're not just comparing about how your life is bad and everyone else's life is great. It's just this idea that you, you're thinking of yourself less which means in your relationship with God, the ways, the mind, the heart of God, you're preoccupied with that. You're sensitive to what's going on around you. You're not driving with road rage. You realize that there's a whole world that exists outside of the world that you're trying to control. The scripture has a lot to say about the humble. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Very similarly, 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Philippians 2, when it comes to a relationship with others, Therefore, if any of you have encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, Value others above yourself. Not looking just to your own interests, but also towards the interests of others. The character of one who follows Jesus, humble heart. Humility before God. We're reminded that he's God, that we're not. Humility towards the community that you're living in. Valuing others. Thinking of others. C.S. Lewis says this is like the complete anti-pride state of mind. And if one group is arrogant, this group is humble in heart. They're humble. The second thing is that they revere God. There's this fear of the Lord. And it's this, you know, when we think of fear, like in in, in God, it's important to define what that means. This kind of fear is reverence. It's awe, it's wonder, it's respect. When I was a kid, I burned my hand on the stove. It was one of the first times I remember having pain. I was maybe five years old. And it was a pain that hurt when I touched the stove, but it was a pain that hurt all night. And I remember having ice on my hand all night long. I haven't burned my hand on a stove since. Knock on wood. Now, I have a healthy reverence to the power of the heat of the stove. An unhealthy fear would be, the stove is out to get me. I can't go in the kitchen because it will burn me. When bad things happen in my life, the stove is still trying to get me. It's still out to get me. When it comes to our fear with God, it's this healthy reverence to his power and his might and his ability. Yet it's in the perspective of of this isn't something, a power that's abusive to us in our life. I stand in awe and wonder of the creator of the universe. I have respect for how he judges the earth with fairness. 
how he judges souls with fairness. And it, it changes how I live in this world because of that respect and awe and wonder. There's a reverence here. I esteem the opinion of God more than the opinions of men and women. One of the, the writers of the wisdom scripture said that the fear, this kind of fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we encounter God, we see the true power of what, is, of what God contains. There should be this healthy amount of reverence and awe. And this group of people who are humble have that. They esteem God, his opinions, his word, more than anything else. The third thing is they encourage one another. It says that they go and they talk to each other. There's this encouragement that takes place. It's not gossip. Maybe it's positive gossip where they're encouraging one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another. Part of being a part of a church community is encouragement. You're speaking life into each other. When I was in high school, I went to a Christian school, and we'd go on this retreat. And one of the things that we did on the retreat was we would have these bags that you would write notes, and you'd put them in. We called them 511 bags, based on 1 Thessalonians 511. And the idea was to encourage each other. I think for a lot of us, we wanted to know who likes who <laughs> through those bags. But... Uh, this intentionality, I'll never forget that the 511 bag, to write encouraging notes to one another, encourage one another, speak life into the community. And here we have the humble of heart, talking with one another, encouraging one another. And here's the, the fourth thing that happens is God hears and he responds. He listens to the humble of heart. He listens to those who fear him. I read that, and that verse was so refreshing to me. I don't know why. Like, yeah, God knows everything. He hears everything, of course. But it says that he hears what they're saying, and he responds. He hears their words and responds. And then it says, On the day when I act, says the Lord, they will be my treasured possession, and I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between those who serve God and those who do not. The Lord hears them and responds. And on the day when I act, they will be my treasured possessions. There's a pastor that uh, was up in Flagstaff that just recently retired. And he told a story that I heard once, and I re remembered it because it was a good story, but it took place back in the early 1900s. And it was about this couple that was a missionary in Africa, and they had just kind of finished their assignment they weren't really connected with anyone. They were in Africa working for a long time just because they felt God had called them to go there, working with the least of these. And uh, they were getting ready to come home. And so as they kind of get on, get on the boat, and they're getting ready to, to come back and come back to New York City and kind of finish their life off there. One of the things they realized is like, we're going back to New York City. We don't really have family. We've broken all of our ties. We feel like we've been serving God forever. We don't have like this pension. So we're going to have to go back and find you know, an apartment in New York City and probably have to work at jobs that just, you know, allow us to survive and it's tough. And, and the, the husband was kind of depressed about it, thinking, I, I have like sold out for God doing this, this missionary work. And I just wish there was, you know, something to, go, to look forward to getting home. They get on the boat and they, they find out that there's someone on the boat that's a celebrity. And, uh, and so there's kind of like this big, commotion when they get on the boat. 
And the person is Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you may know him as. Don't let Teddy, what they call them, be uh, misleading. This guy's a tough guy. He's actually hunting. He was wild game hunting in Africa. And gets on the boat. Everyone's celebrating him. There's music playing. There's a parade. And uh, it's this huge deal. There's all this commotion. Everyone's fired up. And, and the, the husband who gets on the boat you know, sees it, and he's like, ah, here we go again. You know, like, everyone's excited about it. He's like, I, and he's here in Africa entertaining himself doing this hunt. I've been in here, and no one's excited that I'm on the boat, you know, feeling all mopey. And his wife's like, yeah, I know, but it's fine. This is the president of the United States. It's kind of a big deal. And so the whole way home on the boat, like, he just hears it every day. You see Teddy Roosevelt's on the boat. You hear about the game, the, the hunt that he had, you, like, the trophy, some of the, amazing. This guy's amazing. And the more the husband hears it, the more just depressed he gets. And then they, they come into New York, they're in the harbor, and there's this massive parade waiting for the return of Teddy Roosevelt. Bands playing, this big parade, everyone's excited. Looks out and he sees it. I don't get a homecoming coming home from working with God, you know, nothing in it for me. Everyone's celebrating Teddy Roosevelt. And he, he just starts to have this feeling, God, how is this fair? Like what I've done with my life and what I'm coming back to, and what, what this guy did for a week, and what he gets to come back, how is this fair? How does it, uh, he gets celebrated, and I'm not, and so they get into New York, and go, and they hunt for an apartment. Find an apartment, barely can afford it, decide they're going to the next day, try to find jobs, and he, like, the, the depression is so heavy on this, this man. Finally, his wife goes, leave me alone. Go into the room, and you talk to God about it, you deal with it. Don't bring me down with you. Husband, with the weight of the depression, goes into the room, comes out about an hour later smiling. The wife goes, are you okay now? And he goes, yeah, I'm okay now. Okay? How? What, what happened? I said, well, I went down, went, sat down in that room and started screaming at God. So upset. How, do I, how, do, how does Teddy Roosevelt get this homecoming return and we come back to nothing. He says, I, I don't usually hear God like this, but there's like, it's almost like God appeared to me and tapped me on the shoulder from behind. And he said, son, you aren't home yet. Your reward's coming. Your celebration is coming. You're not home yet. It'll happen. And I tell that story because I believe that those who are humble in heart, those who serve God, not expecting anything in return, those who aren't entitled, those who don't expect everyone to celebrate it, God says to them, there's something eternal happening here. And you're not home yet. You're not. But I see you and I hear you. And on the day when I act, you will be my treasured possession. How powerful is that line from Malachi? The day the Lord acts, you will be my treasured possession. This life that we have with God, that we're called to having these humble hearts, serving God, valuing others above ourselves, not living out of arrogance, but living out of humility. This God who is fair and just and loving will act someday. And this is this hope that we have in eternity. God says, you're not home yet, but when you are, 
You will be my treasured possession. We're going to close today with communion. Communion is something that represents for us God's heart that we are his treasure. God came into the earth in the form of Jesus, his son, walked among us, showed us what his love was like, went to the cross, absorbs all of our arrogance and pride and entitlement and sin, the things that we miss the mark with, absorbs that, takes the punishment of that on the cross, conquers sin and death, rises again. And in that resurrection, we have life. And we take this piece of bread that represents the act of God, that represents his body broken open. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood that was shed. And in this relationship, we are treasured possessions for eternity. Today, as you come to the table, maybe you find yourself in one of two groups. Maybe you find that your life is like those who are arrogant. And you've been living out of entitlement and bitterness and comparison. And you just need to return to God today and say, work inside of my heart, change me. There's some things I need to confess and to just give up to you, Lord. Or maybe you're in the other group. You're humble of heart. You ran the marathon this week and didn't get any credit for it. I don't know. <laughs> and you've been serving and pouring out, and you're like the man on the boat saying, where is my reward? And you're exhausted. And you're burnt out. And you just need God to meet you today with this encouraging line that you're my treasured possession. And on the day that I act, you will see that. I don't know what group that you're in. I find myself floating back and forth between the two. But our invitation today is to come to God, allow him to meet you with his presence as we come to the tables. Um, we're going to have a couple people up here to pray with you. Uh, Tyler and Hal will be up here. If you just want someone to pray with you, maybe to give you encouragement, uh, they'll be standing in the middle. When you're ready, move to the sides for communion. You can take communion on your own. Tim's going to come back up here and close us with a time of worship and prayer. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this word in Malachi. Lord, that you are rekindling the fire of faith in our hearts, that you are chipping away at the frost that blinds us so that we can see what you're up to in this world how you want to use us, the things that you want to do in our own hearts. Lord, we're so grateful that you're our treasured. We are your treasured possession. That you see and you hear and you respond. Wherever we're at today, Lord, we just ask that you would meet with us. You would change us in the ways that would make us more like you. You would encourage us in the ways to remind us of the goodness of life with you. So we give you this time right now, Lord, and just ask for your, breath, your blessing, for the fruit of your spirit. In your son's name we pray. Amen.